Let's pray together. God, we do give you thanks for um, your generosity that you express to us through the generosity of people in our church, through the generosity of Scottsdale Bible Church and their incredible kindness to us. And Lord, if this is something that you're doing, then we ask you to continue to open doors and continue to do things that are far beyond what we would dare to ask or even imagine. Um, Lord, we, we want to do everything that we do to please you. And so if this is the direction that you would have us go, then just make that clear and put it on the hearts of your people uh, in our church so that we know that. But Lord, we thank you that your kingdom is not about buildings and growth campaigns. Your kingdom is about the glory of Jesus Christ expressed in the lives of his people. And so we pray that you would build your church as you make us like your son Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, through the love of the Father, through obedience to Christ, as Peter is going to tell us. Lord, more than anything, we long for that work to be done. And so would you use our church to that end. And as, as the glory of Christ is displayed in our lives, Lord, we pray that that would just pour out into our community. And that people would look at the treasure that we have in Jesus as we follow him and they would say, I want that. And we pray that our church would be a vehicle that you would use to draw people to yourself. Father, as we study Peter this morning, I ask that you would lead us in truth and that your spirit would guide us and give us understanding and that we would seek to do all things according to what you have revealed in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. Well, hopefully you're already uh, in your Bible with me now to First Peter. And um, as I promised last week, we're going to finish up First Peter chapter 1, verse 2 this morning. And I told you last week that Peter addresses this letter to the elect exiles that are various churches scattered across Asia Minor. But he goes much, for, much further than that, much further than just calling them elect exiles. In his address, he fleshes out a number of other things which are connected to that election. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let me read with you verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter again. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. The first thing that I would love for you to see this morning is kind of the flow and the movement of what Peter writes here. So for the sake of clarity, if we remove the different cities or regions that he mentions there, then the opening of his letter sounds like this. To those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. These are profoundly Trinitarian verses or words that move from God the Father through the Spirit 
to Jesus Christ the Son. Do you see that? You know, people will say the word Trinity doesn't exist in the Bible, and yet the Bible is very clear on this. Our God is one God in three persons, and we see it clearly in verses just like this. Peter seeks to point his audience to a God at the beginning of his letter who is three in one, who in three persons and one unity has worked to secure their salvation. And so he moves from the past, the Father's foreknowledge, to the present with the Holy Spirit's sanctification, into the future where because of the sprinkling of Christ's blood, all things will be done according to the will of Jesus. God's people will obey him which is to say that we're brought into this relationship with God through the atoning work of Jesus, whose blood paid the debt that we owe to God so that we might be made right with God and called children of God. But that work does not begin, actually, with Jesus on the cross. Peter tells us that we were elected into God's love according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That happened before time. And again, in the present now, we're being sanctified. And in the future, we can expect complete obedience to Jesus Christ. And so do you see how Peter kind of views our salvation here? Not as one particular moment in time when we like got saved, but as this thing that encompasses all of our lives, all of history, all of time and eternity, worked out by all three persons of the one true God from before the foundations of the world, through this life and into eternity. Now you might ask, all right, who cares? Like Grady, isn't this just theology? I have to go buy eggs this week. I have to deal with my parenting problems that I'm struggling with. I have to face a cruddy boss at work. I've got a wayward child who I pray for but can't sleep because of. I've got a hurting marriage. There's a lot of financial uncertainty in my life right now, Grady. All of these health issues that I'm dealing with, I'm lonely, I'm stressed out, I'm scared, and I'm tired. And so like Grady, please explain to me what the foreknowledge of God the Father or the sanctification of the Spirit or obedience to Jesus, how does that make any difference tomorrow, Monday, when all this comes flooding back into my life? And that's exactly the point. What do the struggles of this life really mean in light of the ultimate wisdom and power of God. What ultimate power do the struggles of this life have in the face of a God who operates like this? Don't you see, if you were to take your mind off of your troubles for just one moment and fix your thoughts on this God, don't you see how small your problems would become in light of the Father who foreknew you before eternity began, the Spirit who dwells in you to sanctify you every day, and the Son who is drawing you ever forward into perfect obedience, this God who chose to pour out his love for you before the mountains were wrought, 
The God who has promised to keep you in the power of his spirit every moment of every day through trials and tribulation. And the Jesus who is faithfully shaping you and conforming you into his beautiful image. Don't you see how deeply it matters? Your problems might be big. That's true. But Peter would have you know that God is so much bigger. God will keep you in his power and love. And there's no truth more beautiful, more wonderful, more stabilizing in the chaos of life than this truth that God loves you. God loves you and he's faithful in his love. So let's look more closely at each of these units in verse 2. To begin with, we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, the word foreknowledge means that God knew this before. He knew beforehand what would be. God knew before there was time how all of the events of human history would unfold. Isaiah 46 verse 10 tells us, God says that he has declared the end from the beginning. Meaning from the beginning of all of creation and time, God was moving it all towards his declared end. But grammatically, in this verse right here, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, the word foreknowledge is linked to election. I know there's a lot of other words that come between those phrases, but it's linked to election grammatically. So what specifically then did God foreknow? Well, God knew before the foundation of the world that you would be chosen to love him in Jesus Christ, that you would belong to him, that he would call you his child. God knew before the foundations of the world that he would pour out his love upon you through Christ. God actually planned it this way. So I'm going to stretch you a little bit. We're going to look at a couple different passages. Turn with me right now to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. In this In these verses, we're going to have the Apostle Peter who wrote 1 Peter, and he's actually preaching to a group of mostly unbelievers, non-disciples of Jesus. And uh, listen to what he says here. Actually, let's start in verse 22, Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now the reason I brought you to this verse is because it has the same word, foreknowledge. It's the same teacher, Peter. But in this verse... God's foreknowledge is linked to what? God's definite plan. Peter says that Jesus was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, 
God knows what will happen before it happens because he has planned for it to happen. God was not surprised that lawless men would crucify Jesus. This was in accordance with what he had determined before eternity began. He planned it. He foreknew it. And notice here that where Peter puts the emphasis, he puts the emphasis on plan because the plan comes even before the foreknowledge. That is, the emphasis is not that God knew it would happen, but that God intended for it to happen. It was not God's plan to react to the actions of men as they were unfolding. It was God's plan to have the freely willed actions of men work for his plan and purpose to lead to the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, whenever we touch on this topic, I tell you, I don't know how to explain this to you more than what the Bible says. I, I don't know. These are mysteries. I know that we have a will, and it's broken, and we're called to turn it to Christ in repentance and faith. And I know that God elects us and saves us because he loves us. And all I can say beyond that is humbly, I I don't know how these mysteries come together. But here's what I do know. Just as it was God's plan to have Christ crucified for the redemption of his people, And God was not reacting to man's actions. No, God was acting before time began to bring about his purposes in the same way. It is is not God's plan to just react to the chaos of your life. Your life may be filled with all kinds of chaos right now. And God is not in heaven chewing his nails thinking, how do I make this work out? He's not reacting. It has always been God's plan to love and elect you so that you would have faith in Christ and so that he could keep you in his love. That's beautiful. Let me show it to you a little bit further. Turn to John chapter 17, the gospel of John chapter 17. Remember, we're talking about how God, Peter writes to the elect exiles who were foreknown by God the Father, okay? In John chapter 17, Jesus prays this beautiful prayer. And look what he prays starting in verse 24. John 17, 24. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now look at the end of verse 26. Jesus says that everything that he has done is so that the love of, uh, is because of the love that God has for his son Jesus and so that we might have that very same love. 
But now look back up at verse 24 where we're told about what kind of love this is. At the end of verse 24, we are told that it is love which God the Father had for Jesus his Son from before the foundation of the world. So if that's the love that Christ has or God has for his Son Jesus, and Jesus' desire is for you to share in the love that the Father has for him, then what does that tell you about God's love that he has had for you? It is from the foundation, from before the foundation of the world. The love that God the Father has for you is not only an unending, never-failing, unceasing, relentless torrent of unstoppable, immeasurable love poured out every single day of your life, but he has loved you with the same love that he has loved his son Jesus from before the foundation of the world. And with that love, he elected you to belong to him with foreknowledge, knowing beforehand that you would belong to him and he would keep you and he would safeguard you through all the hardships and trials and temptations of this life. Friends, that is a deeply profound incredibly humbling, heartwarming truth if you would just take some time to stop and think about it. God from before the foundation of the world had his heart set towards you in love, the same love with which he loves his very own son. One last verse on this. Turn to Revelation 13. This is a grammatically tricky verse. I'm not going to get into all of it, but Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. I just want to point out one thing. Revelation 13, 8 says, And all who dwell on earth will worship it, that's the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now you can go home and read the rest of the context of that verse if you want later today, but what we're told here is that in the last days, people will bow down to a blasphemous beast that tries to steal glory from God, but those whose names are written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world, the book of the life of the Lamb, they will not bow down. And you see their names were written there before the foundation of the world. So in the mind of God, God chose us for his love before the foundation of the world. And again, who cares? Like, what does that have to do with my everyday life? Grady, like, here I am at church and we can think about these things, but what does it really matter? It matters more than you could possibly imagine. This matters so much because your love for God, it is so fickle. It's so inconsistent. Don't you feel a deep heaviness in your heart? Like, God, if only I could love you the same way that you love me. If only I could... Love you like I should love you. God, I'm so sorry that I don't love you the way that I should love you. You're just not good at loving God. And neither am I, unfortunately. But God does not love us because we love him. 
You know what the Bible says about this. We love because he first loved us. We are not kept in his love because of our consistency. We're kept in his love because of his consistency. From before the foundation of the world, his love has never changed for us. It will never change for us. It's not even dependent upon what you do. It's dependent upon the fact that you have been sprinkled with Christ's blood. God elected us. God planned all of this. He foreknew it. And so we can be confident that he will keep us in his love. God is committed to us. God is committed to you even when you are not committed to him. Praise God for that. And it's because God is committed to us, you can go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, that Peter writes the next phrase. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says that this is in the sanctification of the Spirit. God's love for us to elect us and know us before the foundation of the world guarantees not only his love for us, but our sanctification in the Spirit. Sanctification simply means holiness. God's plan is for us to be made holy like he himself is holy. And scripture speaks of God's work to make us sanctified or holy as both a completed work that has been done, a past reality that's already accomplished, and also a present ongoing process. We have been made holy by virtue of Christ's death. We've been made holy because the blood of Christ was shed to atone for our sin and make us right with God. And because we are now vessels that have been made right with God, that are made holy by the virtue of Christ's work, now the Spirit of God can dwell in us as vessels so that we are set apart to do the will of God growing in the practice of what Christ has achieved already for us, yoked to him so that we learn to carry his burden with him. In other words, you are holy by virtue of Christ's work, so therefore live as if you are holy because the power of God's Spirit is at work in you to make you walk in righteousness. Don't give yourself over to sin and lawlessness because you've been sanctified. True, we are not yet what we will one day be. We are not yet fully made into the image of Christ the way that we would hope in eternity. But the Spirit of God still resides in us even now to fill us with the love of God, drawing us ever forward into greater faithfulness to Him. The Spirit abides in you so that you might abide in Christ. Romans 6.22 says, But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So God, the Father who loves us, gives us his very own Spirit, so that we might put the power of his grace to work in order to be like him. 
This has nothing to do with earning his love. Don't misunderstand. He already gave us that love before we ever could have earned it, remember? Before the foundation of the world. But having received that love, we respond to it through the Spirit to walk in holiness and righteousness as grace is poured out on us. And that grace leads us to the next phrase, for obedience to Jesus Christ. You have been elected by the love of God the Father according to his plan and then filled with the Spirit so that you might be obedient to the teaching of Jesus. The redeeming work of God, pouring out his love upon us in the same way that he loved Jesus, then coupled with the power of the Spirit of God dwelling in us, transforming us into righteousness, leads us to obedience. And this is also why we've been elected, Peter teaches us. We've been elected for obedience. Not so that we could simply be forgiven for our sins, but so that we could walk in the commands of Jesus Christ. And all of this is possible because we've been sprinkled with his blood. Not because you're a good person or because of your works of righteousness, but because Christ shed his blood for you. His blood made all of this possible. He bore the penalty for your sin. He set us free from wrath and condemnation and sin. And his work of atonement set us free for obedience. And his work of atonement is sufficient to cover all of our sins along the way when we fail to walk in obedience. As we slowly learn this path of sanctification, Christ's blood is still there making atonement even for those sins. You heard it as we read 1 John chapter 2, but why don't you read it with me again? It's not far from 1 Peter. You can turn back in your Bible to your left just a couple of pages. or I'm sorry, to your right a couple of pages. First John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. There it is. John is teaching the same thing as Peter. All of this grace that you've been given, all of this sanctification that is yours, it's yours so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, meaning... His blood was shed to atone for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God's desire is that all people would repent and come to him and find redemption. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Verse 3, And by this we know that, there have, or that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We've been elected for obedience to Jesus Christ. By the grace we've received through the sprinkling of his blood. 
And we've been filled with the Spirit and elected in God's love so that we might not sin going forward. So that we might walk in the same way in which he walked because his life is at work in us every day by grace. And if and when we fail, then we find that Christ, our advocate, is there with us. His sprinkled blood continues to cover our failures. So listen, God has made every provision for you as a Christian. He loved you. He elected you. He atoned for your sin. He's given you the power of Christ. He's made obedience possible. He's taught you with his word. He's opened up to you the kingdom of heaven by grace. His love is secure from before the foundation of the world unshakable. His spirit is with you to sanctify you, to lead you, and conform you to the holiness that he expects. And he's already even provided the holiness by grace because we have been sanctified. We're covered in the blood of Jesus and forgiven for our sins and failures. And the result then is that we walk in obedience. Now again, you might ask, what difference does it make? Why is this important, Grady? And the reason is because too many Christians have been told that the gospel is just about having your sins forgiven. How many times have you been told that? The gospel is your sins are forgiven. Now that is part of the gospel, and it is an important part of the gospel. But it's only half of the gospel. The other half of this good news is that God has done a work on your behalf so that you no longer have to be continually defeated by sin. You can be free Not just from the condemnation and the shame of sin, but from its power over you every day of your life. Free from the ruin of evil that is both outside of you in this broken world that we live in, but also inside of you. You can be free to love God. Free to walk in the goodness of his way as you obey Jesus. Truly, to be a Christian is to leave behind the old life of sin and to freely give your heart to following Jesus deeper into the love of the Father through the power of the Spirit. And this matters because this is, this is the Christian faith that we profess. It's so much more than just forgiveness. It means that everything has changed. And all of this is tied to grace and peace, which is how Peter ends this opening to his letter. He expresses his desire for those who read this letter to have grace and peace multiplied. We spent some time reflecting on grace a few weeks back, but I think that we can probably never reflect on grace enough. So let's go ahead and do that a little bit more this morning. Let me reiterate a few things I've already tried to teach you about grace. Most importantly, that grace is so much more than the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you've heard people say grace is God's unmerited favor. Yes, but it's so much more than that. Grace is what leads the Christian onward from the moment of salvation in every moment that comes after. Every moment of every day. Did you know that grace will still be with you forever into eternity? That's how grace will be multiplied to you? 
Because grace, what grace is, is God's power at work in you to do what you cannot do on your own. You cannot save yourself, so grace saves you. You cannot sanctify yourself, and so grace leads us in holiness. You cannot sustain your soul with air or bread or water, and so it's grace that sustains your soul, that makes you hunger for God. You cannot even ensure your own life, and so it's grace that offers you eternal life. Grace is what firmly establishes us within the power of God, His power to save us, and His power to change us, and His power to keep us day by day. This is why Peter would want grace to be multiplied to us, my friends. See, there would be no need for grace to be multiplied to you if grace was just the thing that saved you at a moment of time. It would be done. There would be no multiplication. It would be grace times zero. It's over, which equals zero, right? And that's also why Peter will write in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, grow in grace. Grow in grace. Because in order for the Christian to walk in obedience, he needs more and more grace every day, not less grace. Do you understand? The more mature that you become as a believer, the more grace you need every day. There will never come a point where you are like, I got this, God. I no longer need your power to do the way of Jesus. And of all the disciples that we get to see in the Gospels, I think Peter came to understand the need for ongoing grace most of all. Because I think he, more than any of the other disciples, really seemed to believe that he could follow Jesus on his own. Don't you kind of get that from him when you read the Gospels? But in time, he came to understand that only grace, given by God and liberally put to use by the Christian who depends wholly upon God, only grace could carry Peter to the end. And sadly, I believe that many Christians fail to embrace grace. They look to their own work, their own effort, rather than God's power. And they end up using only the tiniest bit of grace. Like what Rick, I think, was saying this morning is that Jesus will haul that load for you. That's why it's light. Because he will do the heavy lifting. He already has. And so I think many Christians like, yeah, grace, I got saved, and now, you know, I'm working to be more like Jesus. And in doing that, you're only using the tiniest bit of grace because the, the smallest measure of grace is the forgiveness piece. God's grace given to us in forgiveness is extremely important, but I think actually it's only the smallest of grace. Tidal waves of grace are given to those Christians who walk in obedience it's, it's not hard, I think, to come to God and say, forgive me. But it is difficult to come to God and say, I want to obey. Make me obey. The fruit that comes from abiding in Christ is all the fruit of grace, which is why Jesus says, bear fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. The author Dallas Willard says that Christians who walk in obedience burn grace like a 747 burns jet fuel. 
Because all of that holiness and righteousness and obedience comes from living in grace, in the power of God at work in us to do what we could not do on our own. And Peter would have us receive that grace in ever-multiplying amounts. And Peter is also concerned with peace, so his desire is for grace and peace to be multiplied to us. I think that peace multiplied in our hearts is really just the byproduct of grace. Grace multiplied gives birth to peace multiplied. No longer do we feel the frustration of always being defeated by sin. Have you ever felt the total lack of peace of just getting your butt kicked over and over and over again by sin? But the more grace you have, the more victory you have, the more peace you receive. No longer do we feel anxious about life when we have grace because through grace we stop looking at ourselves and we look to God and we find confidence and all the cares of this life begin to fade in light of his glory. No longer do we become fearful because we stop thinking about our works in grace. We think about the work of Christ. And what could we have to fear when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, we see the sufficiency of his work. True peace can only come from a right relationship with God. And that right relationship is found in humbly living before God to receive from him the daily grace that we need. To say it another way, living in grace means that we don't really think about ourselves much at all anymore because we've set our hearts and our minds on Christ. And when our hearts and our minds are full of Christ, when we're thinking about his grace, then our hearts and minds will also be at peace. Now, Peter's vision, his desire for the people of God is not merely that they would receive grace and peace, but that these things would be multiplied. And I think what he has in mind here is not a mere multiplication table where the numbers grow incrementally. Take a look at this slide. I think he has in mind in incremental growth. Uh, so, Here's how this works, right? This is a multiplication table. Two times two is four. Two times three is six. You know how this works. Two times four is eight. Two times five is ten. Two times six is twelve. I don't think that's what Peter has in mind. That's too puny in light of this God who foreknew you and loved you before the foundations of the world. I think uh, this growth doesn't yield the kind of supernatural numbers that we might be impressed with. What if we multiply the answer by itself each time? Take a look at this and you can see the multiplication power of God. Grace and peace multiplied to you. In that case, 2 times 2 is 4, and 4 times 4 is 16, and 16 times 16 is 256, and 256 times 256 is 65,536. 65,536 times 65,536 is 4,294,967,296. Wouldn't you like that kind of grace and peace multiplied to you? My friends, I think this is what Peter has in mind. And you know what? Can you imagine this? What if it doesn't end at the end of this life? What if this is what eternity is? Grace and peace multiplied by itself forever, endlessly to the glory of God. I believe this is ours to receive through Christ. Christ. 
And you know what I find really cool about these last couple or these first couple of verses in Peter? And I'll end with this, I promise. You can't see this in English, unfortunately. And um, I hate to do this as a preacher, like your English Bible is awesome. But sometimes there are some things that you might not pick up grammatically just reading the English. And uh, what's fascinating about these first couple of verses, verses 1 and 2 in 1 Peter 1, is that there's no verb. There, there's, there's only one verb in these verses, and it, it, it comes at the very end. So Peter writes this long introduction, and of course, English, in order to translate this, has to put a verb in here, like our language doesn't work like this. But in Greek, there's no verb until you get to the end, and do you know what the verb is? See, verbs are action words like run or jump or eat or laugh, and Peter leaves us waiting for that verb until the very end. The verb is be multiplied. In other words, that is emphatic, my friends. All of this work that God has done to elect you and foreknow you and give you the spirit to sanctify you and sprinkle you in the blood of Christ so that you will be obedient to him, all of that God has done in order to multiply to you grace and peace. All the emphasis is there. Because of the Father's electing love, and the Spirit's sanctifying power and the sprinkled blood of Jesus, grace and peace is multiplied to us from God. Let's pray. God, would you give us a taste of this grace and peace multiplied to us, not intellectually, not mentally, but experientially. Lord, would you cause our hearts to just rest in the finished work of Jesus. Would you give us encouragement in the sanctifying power of the Spirit? Would you give us great, deep joy in the electing love of the Father? Lord, would you pour out your grace on our lives in ever-increasing ways to the glory of Jesus. Amen.